This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Law School Show. My name is Miho, and I'm an incoming 3L student at the University of Ottawa. I'm super excited to be hosting this episode as I have a very special guest joining me. My guest today is a University of Ottawa Faculty of Law alum who graduated in 2013. She now runs her own practice. Aisha, thank you so much for joining me today. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Miho. I think uh, I'm really excited to do this podcast with you today. Um, so my name is Aisha Kumaratna. I'm a lawyer here in Ottawa running a small firm now. Uh, it's comprised of two lawyers and our assistant, and then we have two students uh, generally every semester with us and for the summers. Uh, I practice in immigration and criminal law, uh, mostly in immigration practice, and uh, a lot of my criminal law work now is mostly to do with writing legal opinions uh, that are used by typically criminal defense lawyers uh, when they're advocating for clients who are not Canadian citizens before uh, judges for their sentencing. So our practice is mainly litigation-based. We do a lot of uh, appearances before the Immigration and Refugee Board and the Federal Court of Canada. Uh, and uh, yes, we just like uh, fighting for, for everyday people and uh, people who are marginalized as well. Mm-hmm. That's great. And uh... You started your own practice within a few years of graduating from law school, um, which is amazing. How was that experience for you? Yes. Yeah, so my path has been very um, unpredictable. I, I mean, I started my practice pretty much uh, a few months after my call to the bar. Um, so I was called in 2014, and then I had just finished articling um, with a criminal defense lawyer, which was, again, something that kind of happened uh, not in a planned way as a, a government position lined up uh, for my articling uh, before uh, plans changed, basically. Um, and uh, w- the reason I landed up um, working um, in what I'm doing right now is because I really noticed that there was a gap um, that needed to be filled with um, for persons who um, need help on the immigration side as well as the criminal side. And uh, criminal lawyers weren't that um, involved or uh, had the knowledge as much about the immigration side of things and how that affects their clients. And immigration lawyers generally didn't delve into criminal law issues. Um, but I really saw the need for somebody who did both. And so that's kind of how I started my practice, because uh, nobody wanted to hire an, an immigration lawyer to do criminal work and no criminal firm wanted to hire a lawyer to do immigration work. So I just had to create something out of necessity. And I'm glad I did. That's incredible. And I feel like sometimes as students, we feel or at least I felt that there is a strong emphasis placed on kind of this one kind of typical legal career pathway, but that's just not the case at all. And I really love your story because you took a more unconventional path and now you have a really successful uh, law practice. And I love it. (laughs) And so how were you able to grow and expand your practice since you first started? Because now you uh, have an associate and an assistant, which is great. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
I practice in a niche area and in Ottawa, there aren't many lawyers who practice both areas. So I found myself uh, in a really healthy place from a business perspective where I didn't really have that much competition. Um, and also because I'd articled in criminal law, um, I had gotten to know uh, a lot of the criminal lawyers here in Ottawa very, very well. Uh, just a, you know, a shout out to the Defense Counsel Association of Ottawa, the DCAO. Um, if you're interested in criminal law, um, practicing criminal law in Ottawa is probably one of the best things out there. Um, it's such a supportive environment, uh, especially amongst defense lawyers. Uh, there's so much mentorship that goes around and it's just a great sense of community. And it's really that sense of community that helped me thrive when I first started my practice because all of these lawyers who had gotten to know me uh, really helps uh, promote my practice. For instance, when I first started, um, you know, and they knew that uh, they had a client who was not a Canadian citizen and they were concerned about the consequences of pleading guilty uh, or of a specific you know, sentence being handed down by a judge, how it would impact their status, those lawyers would often call me and give me a chance, right? Uh, and very quickly after that, uh, you know, my referral base grew. So, you know, that's how it started. And um, since then, um, again, it's not an area where many lawyers get involved. And I find that all that knowledge I gained from my unexpected articling job in criminal law really, really helped me um, in a lot of, for example, my deportation appeals that are based on criminality um, or uh, danger opinions, which are uh, basically a complicated um, application uh, involving refugees who are at risk of uh, getting deported due to criminality. So really understanding cr the criminal law practice really helped me in that, as well as detention reviews. Again, using my experiences doing bail, bail hearings in the criminal law context and bringing all that training into the way I defend people in the immigration detention uh, system uh, is another example. So basically, you know, overlapping these experiences and overlapping these um, skill sets, I was able to grow many different types of work that I do. And then eventually I was able to start small. I started with an SBI student every semester. Uh, so Courtney Shields was my associate right now. She was my very second <laughs> SBI student that I had back in 2016. Uh, it was definitely scary taking on a, the responsibility of, uh, you know, mentoring a student. Um, but then she ended up being my summer student, my articling student, and now she's my associate of two years. Um, I also have an assistant. And I think one of the, from a business point of view, some of the things that helped me manage that was that I am in a cost sharing arrangement with another lawyer that has allowed me to share the expense of an associate, of an assistant, as I am getting my footing. So, you know, again, using your networks, using the supports that you have in your own community when you're starting out is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's yeah, that's interesting to hear. And that's great to hear that when you were first starting out, it seems like you did have kind of a supportive community around you. Um, so would you say mentorship played a big role in, in, in your career so far? Yes, 100%. And that is why I invest a lot of time doing a lot of mentorship of my own with younger uh, law, uh, you know, lawyers and law students, because I'm just trying to give back what was given to me. Um, when I first started out, a mentorship 
is not just about getting referrals. It's also being able to kind of have a, have a sounding board, you know, when you have tough cases where you're maybe nervous uh, about whether you're taking the right steps or not, especially when you're a young lawyer. And especially if you're on your own, you do not actually want to be an isolated uh you know, practitioner. You want to be surrounded by people who you can bounce off ideas, who can tell you if you're, you know, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, you know, for all sorts of reasons. You know, you have ethical obligations, but you also have to be professionally competent. So being able to have, a, um, you know, a mentor who you can talk to is really important. So when I first started out, um, although I was surrounded by criminal um, mentors from the criminal law world, I really did not have any mentors from the immigration side. And it's funny because immigration is my main practice. So what I did was I called up my old law school professor, uh, Michael Bosson, um, who works at the Community Legal Services uh, uh, of Ottawa. And I said, hey, Michael, you definitely don't remember me, but I was a student of yours like three years ago uh, for one semester, and I really need a mentor. And, um, you know, if you know anyone who knows Michael knows that he's a very busy lawyer. He's also a very senior lawyer. He's done amazing advocacy work. And he was gracious enough to say, you know what? Yes, of course, you're a past student of mine. I barely have time, but as a past student of mine, you know, you can call me up anytime. And then I talked his ear off um, endlessly, uh, and then he's like, hey, have you met my colleague, Lila Demerdash? <laughs> I think that was his way of saying, you know what, I need to I need to introduce you to other people so you don't just call me. Um, and so that's how, you know, my pool of mentors in immigration law um, expanded. And I so I really had to, like, seek it out uh, when I knew that it wasn't naturally around me the way my criminal law mentors were. Um, so mentorship is important for referrals, but also f- to make sure that you've you're getting it right in those first few years. Mm-hmm. I, I Yeah, I see. And I, I really like that, you know, you really emphasize the importance of mentorship and then now being a, a successful lawyer in immigration law with your own practice. Now you like to give back, you know, to your community and you like to be, be the mentor and not the mentee. And of course, I'm sure, you know, I mean, you may still have like many mentors, but I, I like that you, you're kind of giving back to the community Um, Mm -hmm. And you might have answered this a little bit, but um, why did you decide to practice more so in the area of immigration law rather than criminal law? Yes. So, um, you know, when I first started, uh, you know, and and I knew this intersection was what I had going for me, my understanding of both uh, in in such a in such a detailed way. Um, So I focused a lot on the criminality based immigration work. Uh, but as time went on, I just became busier and busier on the immigration side. And unfortunately, it becomes a matter of uh, it's, a, it's a business decision based on the compatibility of the work schedules. So in criminal law, many times, you know, there's wiggle room with respect to adjournments of cases or scheduling of cases. You know, if you're not ready to proceed with a bail hearing, you know, you can adjourn it and you can adjourn it a week from now or to tomorrow, whatever works. But on the immigration side, the deadlines are quite strict and inflexible. So uh, oftentimes I have 15-day deadlines, for instance, if I'm filing um, a narrative for a a refugee claimant. uh, You know, those are very fixed deadlines I cannot, you know, wiggle out of. As a result, it just became increasingly difficult if, you know, for instance, I was stuck waiting for a bail hearing in criminal court and I'm maybe number three on the list, and even though the bail court might open at 9.30, I would often be there till 4.30, still haven't 
gone ahead with a bail hearing and I was just wasting away all day at the courthouse. So it just became very you know, apparent to me that it was getting way too difficult to balance that kind of flexibility in criminal law and unpredictability in criminal law with the very stringent deadlines in immigration law. So that had me uh, scale back my, my criminal practice for sure. And I did my last criminal trial in uh, December 2020. I concluded it. So uh, again, and that was just purely out of uh, scheduling difficulties. Um, so yeah, and, and I mean, also, I don't control all the cases that come through the doors. So I definitely saw an um, abundance of immigration cases, whereas with criminal cases, I think I was really struggling um, to have a lot of criminal cases, although my legal opinion part of my practice, so those are the legal opinions I write uh, for criminal lawyers uh, for use in sentencing or um, in the judicial pretrials or negotiations with the Crown, that was always a thriving practice that continues now and continues to be a, a big part of my practice today. So I felt like you know, do what you're good at and what you're best at and just hone that in because sometimes it's really not worth it to try and do everything. And this is what I'm known for. So I'm not giving up anything I'm known for, but I'm taking away the things that were no longer um, suiting my practice, but also my work-life balance and everything else. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And um, being a young woman with your own practice, does um, does that surprise a lot of people, clients, other colleagues? I think when I first started, uh, clients were definitely, um, when they first met me physically, they'd be surprised because when I, when I started my practice, I was 25. Um, and you know, I think they were surprised at my youthful appearance (laughs) and that makes clients nervous sometimes. And I, I think it was more my youthfulness than my gender that threw off clients mainly because when, when you run your own practice, and this is one of the great benefits of being a woman or a person of color and running your own practice, really, is that people already know who they're hiring. They already are seeking you out by your name and who you are. So they already know you're a woman. They already know you're a person of color, right? So I didn't. I don't face a lot of the kind of uh, issues that I feel a lot of my female um, colleagues face who maybe work in a firm setting. But we can talk about that certainly a little bit more later. But Uh, For the purposes of your question, um, you know, I think main thing was clients were surprised by my youthfulness. Um, But, you know, very quickly that kind of becomes irrelevant as soon as they start talking to you and then you build that rapport with clients and then they're like, oh, yes, this is definitely who I want to hire as my lawyer. Um, All of those kind of prejudices kind of go out the window in my experience once uh, you've established that rapport uh, with that client in that first um, experience. Now with uh, colleagues in the fellow, you know, and the, in the legal world, it's a little bit different. Um, ironically, I've kind of faced a little bit more uh, maybe judgment from other female lawyers, especially in other maybe uh, other fields that aren't in the criminal law world, for instance, uh, because the legal um just the legal field here in Ottawa is really small. Um, I, a lot of the criminal lawyers know me very well, know me personally. Uh, even in the immigration law world, a lot of people do know me uh, on a personal level. So I always find it's if I go to law events and I meet other people in other firms or in other practice areas that they're like, oh, you run your own practice. 
you're so like young. Um, and I think there is sometimes a little bit of a stigma of like, why are you running your own practice? Is it, you know, is it because you couldn't get a job at a firm? Uh, but usually, again, once they get to know me and um, they see what I've done, that also goes out the window. Um, and with judges, again, you know, I think uh, with judges, it's a bit different. I think that, um, again, the criminal law judges who I appeared in front of during my articling, um, you know, I've had a chance to get to know them. They are very familiar with me, um, you know, through just the social events that we see each other at. So I didn't feel like um, I, I didn't feel anything from the criminal law world, but I do sometimes find when I appear before federal court judges, you know, there's definitely because there's fewer opportunities to, in, to mingle with uh, judges like that. Um, and there is sometimes uh, preconceived notions, I think, and with the Immigration Refugee Board board members. But then again, that very quickly fades away once they've seen you after the first couple cases and know very quickly, like, you know, what caliber of lawyer you are. That's interesting. Do you feel that you're, you're more confident now than you were, um, maybe say like six, seven years ago? That's a really interesting question. Cause I actually think about that all the time. Um, cause sometimes I can't believe the things I did like to get to where I'm at. Uh, so the, like, for instance, the audacity of starting my practice a few months, um, after my call. And then, I testified in the Superior Court of Justice uh, as an expert, I think it was about eight months after my call to the bar, about immigration immigration law issues. And again, you know, just I must have had blind confidence. You know, you kind of have to. You need to have that kind of like fire in you, I think, to start your practice because it's a nerve-wracking thing, right? You're putting yourself out there. You're saying that, first of all, you just graduated from law school, but someone should pay you money to give you, you know, to give them legal advice. So to have that level of confidence, um, you need something in you. Sometimes I wonder if I have the same level of confidence today that I had then. But I think that I think what it really is, is a different type of confidence that I have now. Now I have the confidence of having done so many cases, so many appeals, so many refugee claims that I am now very comfortable in my confidence. Whereas I think at the start, you kind of have to put on that level of confidence to attract clients, to also just for yourself, you want to feel like you know what you're doing, right? Whereas now I definitely know what, I, uh, what I've been doing and my track record can show, you know, show me that. So I think it's just the nature of your confidence changes, but you need different types of confidence for sure at each stage. That's great. And um, so I guess, is there anything that you wish you knew before starting your own practice or would you do anything differently um, with all of the wisdom that you've gained now? Well, I think one of the things that really shocked me um, about uh, running my own practice is not so much the business, but it's more to do with our well-being. One thing that I think law school did not prepare me for at that time, and I'm sure maybe things are different now, was nothing prepared me for what it's like to actually, actually, you know, provide assistance to human, other human beings, and uh, vulnerable people, people in distress, and then also how that impacts your own mental health and well-being, how that affects, you know, what you take home with you at the end of the day mentally, how it affects your sleep, how that can have a compounded effect after amount of, after a certain amount of time if you haven't taken care of yourself. Um, when you are starting your own practice, you know, you're very um, concerned about 
giving it your all. So, you know, you tend to overwork, you tend to, you know, every minute that you're not spending on a client case, you're basically honing your skills by self-study, right? You're reading every new case, you're reading every new, um, you know, law book that comes out in your practice area. So that's what I was doing, even though I had maybe 10 clients when I first started, uh, that certainly won't, you know, take up 60 hours of your, uh, of your work week, but it did because I was just so, um, obsessed with getting every possible thing right, knowing about every single possible case. So what I did not predict or was aware was at all aware of it was the impact that might have my mental well-being and just being physically and mentally prepared for having that level of stamina that you need uh, mentally to run your own practice. Right. And that's actually one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about in kind of creating that separation and having kind of that work-life balance but um, how, how do you create that separation that emotional separation between your work and your personal life it is not easy that that's for sure um but I think um and these are gonna sound so cliche but mindfulness like developing an honest mindfulness practice is so important the sooner you are mindful like having a mindfulness practice, the sooner you can become aware of how things are affecting you. Like you can then become aware of like, oh, wait a second, my heart rate's elevated, even though I'm just sitting here and not even talking to a client. Oh, it's because I'm thinking about this thing my client told me about this very traumatic experience, um, you know, and just recognizing when those things happen, then you, you, you put attention to it and then you can kind of bring it down again, right? So uh, for me, creating separation has has required me to re-examine really my life outside of work and creating a greater distance between me as a like Aisha as a lawyer and then Aisha as this person who is not a lawyer right because I think one of the biggest problems that happens if you're a very ambitious um you know young lawyer and you know typically most people go to law school have this type a personality is that you are very vulnerable to having being a lawyer be your entire identity especially if you run your own practice as well, because it's kind of like you're kind of the boss and you have to deal with these decisions all the time. You don't really leave your business when you you know are done for the day. So trying to create that separation and distance by, you know, basically being very religious about your boundaries, uh, about a mindfulness practice or any other mental health practice, about, you know, finding life outside of work. That means, you know, hobbies and things that will literally you know, be like another item on your agenda for the day that you prioritize. Um, those are the ways that you can distance yourself emotionally uh, from from the things that you hear about in your practice every day. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. And what kind of things do you do in your free time or your perhaps your limited free time? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I say this, and it's always a challenge. And I think it comes down to really uh, trying to schedule things in. Otherwise, you know, you'll never do these things. So some of the things that I enjoy doing, um, and it's going to sound really cheesy, but I love gardening. Um, and, you know, right now I'm obsessed with like my gardening. I've, I've just started on some vegetable seeds um, a few weeks ago, and now they're completely ready to be transplanted. And just like literally putting all my energy into planting, like, you know, my vegetable patch and like figuring out the odor of that. Um, other things I like to do is I have a stationary like rowing a machine. So I like to row. Uh, I find that having a good sweat at the end of the day is a good way to kind of 
get to sleep as well. Um, and then a meditation practice. So uh, I'm, I'm, I try to be uh, mindful during walks, but I also try to be, uh, try to have an active meditation practice that's at least once a day. And it doesn't have to be like 30 minutes, right? It could be even be five minutes just to like check in with yourself. Um, and I, and I have a dog that kind of came into my life unexpectedly through a client <laughs> of always. And, uh, that totally changed my life as well, because now there's this other thing that, you know, needs to, needs me to take it for a walk and do stuff. Right. So I think that really helped me, uh, you know, prioritize things outside of my job. Okay. Yeah, that's great. And I, I love all of your hobbies, like gardening. That's <laughs> so much fun um what kind of vegetables do you do you have or do you grow well I you know this is my really my first year of doing kind of bigger stuff beyond like you know herbs and tomatoes um this year we are planning for some beets squash uh we've got some eggplant going um carrots tricolor carrots so yeah it's an experiment we'll see where it goes but really it doesn't really matter where it goes right it's just the 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 process of doing it and also I just love cooking so I try to make something new um, a couple times a week that I've never made before almost like a as an activity right right and it also kind of serves a double function because then it's feeding myself too right so I just try to find ways like that to kind of occupy occupy my time, but also occupy my mind. Uh, that way I'm not constantly just thinking about clients and work 24-7. But it took a long time to get here, like years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I love how you have a puppy. I, I feel like I've heard a lot of uh, a lot of my friends and um, and other fellow students at the law school. Um, they're like, oh, I got a, a pandemic puppy and, you know, oh, I, I just got a kitten. And and they do really have a big difference, I feel like, in your life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I also had a dog that passed away um, a few years ago, but um yeah, my dog, you know, really helped me through some yeah. very stressful times. So, so I've been also thinking about getting another dog, but yeah, um, well, it's hard to get over a pet that you lose. Like when I, our family dog passed away in 2011 and literally I couldn't think of another dog. And then the dog, my dog now, Harry, basically a client of mine abandoned Harry. Um, and Harry's a very vivacious uh, Australian shepherd which is not the kind of, you know, relaxed dog that one might want to get. But he's kind of like the perfect dog to have come into my life. So he kind of came into my life unexpectedly. My client just abandoned this dog. And I said, you know what, I will step up. I will take this dog for some reason. And uh, it really showed that, well, Harry has really shown me um, how to, you know, focus on things other than work all the time. Maybe maybe it was meant to be that. I think so. Yeah, that's so interesting. And do you think that the timing was was right, or oh yes, you, I'm just gonna you know take care of the dog. Yeah. So in twenty, and uh, you know, in 2017, I in August 2017, I basically burned out, and it was a real wake up call because it was a really strange feeling. Um, I just turned into a vegetable, and I kind of like. Um, and I'm very, I like, I love to openly talk about this because I think we need to do more of that. Um, but I found myself, you know, in 2017, I was three years out, but I was definitely overworking and I found myself just like, I took 
took a walk down the street and just sat on a bench and I was just like feeling totally numb and like a vegetable and my body was just kind of like felt like it was screaming like you need to do something like you're not okay mm-hmm. um and that was like the first time I decided to kind of like see like you know basically use the same advice I give to all my clients who are traumatized like go see you know you need to get help you need to go see a therapist it'll really help you and yet there I was without a therapist without ever getting help so I was like you know what I'm gonna see if I can talk to someone today and that was the start of one of the other things that I do to take care of myself mentally is um, I started seeing a therapist who I see um you know, on a regular basis, if I'm going through a lot of stressors at work, especially, and what I mean by that is if I'm listening to like nonstop trauma cases or like nonstop really violent cases, um, I do find myself needing to talk to her maybe every couple of weeks. But um, on, you know, when I'm on a good stretch, I'll still continue to see her at least every like four to six weeks, probably like, you know, six weeks if there's really no trauma cases going on. And I find that that kind of maintenance really, really, really helps you because then you offload all your stress onto somebody else uh, and then it's out of your system. And then Harry came uh, in 2018. Oh, okay. That's, I mean, <laughs> I know. So like it just kind of coincided with the need to kind of create space in my life for non-work, you know, self-care. And so when Harry came to my life, I was I wasn't sure if (laughs) I actually was taking care of him temporarily because, you know, I'm a real bleeding heart like that. And then my client was like, I can't. And he left. Um, and then Harry stayed with me and, uh, I got very attached to him. He came to the office with me. Uh, he still does from time to time. He's, he's now about two and a half years old. So I would say it all just kind of happened at the right time and it's what I needed. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for sharing that about, you know, what happened. I think that's really important just because it's, especially in the legal profession, you know, even in law school, I feel like everyone, you know, is working so hard and it's all about like grinding hard and, you know, getting stuff done and all about ambition and moving up the ladder. Mm-hmm. But it's also, you know, obviously really important to maintain that that boundary and, and kind of like know yourself and know when you're getting too stressed and too mm-hmm. overwhelmed. And it's and, you know, mental health is so important. So so thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. No problem. I I just, it's definitely something that we should talk about more openly because, you know, it, it, some, you know, sometimes that old mentality of like, okay, like self-care is still like, you know, something, you you know, you, you can just like do privately. It's not, it's not really that important. Like it's really incredibly important, even from the point of view as an employer. So, you know, I'm an employer, I have an associate, I have an assistant. And every time I see Courtney, um, you know, my associate, if, if I see that she's uh, maybe like, not herself, you know, I I take that as a huge red flag that it's, you know, it's not her work. It's like, it's to do with maybe, you know, she's not taking care of herself. And I make sure that she takes a few days off, you know, and I talk to her like, what's going on? Tell me about the cases you're working on. In our office, we talk very openly about mental health and how we're doing. We check in together as a group, like, okay, how is everyone feeling? Can we, like, for instance, talking about even, like, the capacity to take on more cases. It's not just to do with me. Like, maybe I have the capacity to take on five more cases, but maybe my associate who assists me or my assistant who supports me does not have that capacity, right? So uh, we're very uh, community kind of oriented um, 
office. And so checking in with everyone ensures that we're all healthy. Because if we're not, if you're having a lawyer or an associate who's like just working on fumes, it's going to it's going to result in a very critical mistake on a file that is going to affect your client's um, legal issue. But in, in our cases, could even affect their life because the cases that we deal with have to do with life and death if it's a refugee claim and or someone facing deportation, for example, right? So, you know, mental health, taking care of yourself, it's not just like a self-interested thing that's nice to do. It's, it's totally an integral part of running a, a stable and successful business. Mm-hmm. And knowing what you know now, um, before 2018, were there any kind of like red flags or warning signs that, mm-hmm. uh, that you see now that you're like, oh, maybe, maybe that was something that I should have paid attention to within yourself? Yes. Um, I think that at that time, you know, aside from just feeling tired a lot or not sleeping well, um, I think um, at that time I was having nightmares, like quite frequently. Um, And I realized that I was just like, the nightmares were oftentimes uh, like a repeat of stories that I heard that day from a client from a firsthand perspective, right? Uh, it's really, you know, and it's not even my trauma, it's somebody else's. So that's, you know, we're talking about like vicarious or secondhand trauma, um, which honestly, I, I didn't, I didn't think was a big deal until it happened to me. Um, and then, you know, I, I've now implemented strategies to, to not allow that to happen again. So for instance, I'll space out uh, my refugee claimants who are uh, coming from w- with very heavy stories like that. Or, um, you know, I've got a, I've definitely got a limit on how many of those types of cases I take in a week. Um, I will, you know, inter kind of mix in cases that have nothing to do with trauma uh, on my schedule. Um, Back then, I used to basically book back to back to back meetings that were all high trauma cases, because I just was like, I need to I need to fit fit all these clients in and everyone needed help. And, you know, there was a there was not many not many uh, lawyers to refer out to. So I felt like I felt like it was my responsibility to squeeze in every single case. And so I would sit there for like six, eight hours doing, you know, three, four, two hour meetings, uh, just listening to trauma after trauma after trauma without a break, without eating. Um, so basically the, the red flags were the way I was running my practice and my schedule. It all comes down to lifestyle, you know, and that has to do with, you know, the way you schedule things the way you're looking at your caseload. There are easy ways to kind of offset all that, even though you can continue to do high trauma cases, uh, there are ways to healthily uh, divvy that up so that you're not just doing it like back to back to back, for instance, right? So I think I think there are things like that, which I was learning as I was going because I was running a practice and I was growing a business. So my priority at that stage of my career was I just need to make it. I need to pay my bills. I need to make sure my staff is paid. Right. So I couldn't afford to even think of myself, really. But now looking back and where I'm at right now, I realize how important it is for our long term longevity's sake to maintain balance and healthy working habits. Right. So that's why now I'm in a privileged position to be able to say no to cases, to space things out, to check in on everybody. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it is. Right. And I think all of those are very valuable lessons for anyone who's wanting to start their own practice Mm -hmm. or start their own 
business. And just in terms of because you're both a business owner and a lawyer, what kind of things do you have to do for the business side of things? So for the business side, I mean, the main thing is, you know, and and this is coming again from a, a place where law school did not teach me anything about running a business. So I literally, you know, Google business plan, because like when you have, when you open your business accounts with a bank, for instance, they still want you to show them a business plan and these kinds of things. So really I was just a self starter with everything kind of guessing how much money I would need to bring in for different things. Um, You know, right off the bat, it's really important to have a good accountant. Um, You know, they're expensive, but they're worth it uh, because those accounting mistakes you don't want. You don't want CRA ever bothering you. So thankfully, that has not happened to me. Um, You want to surround yourself with any good advice. So again, going to mentors and asking them, okay, how do you expand your business? How do you, um, you know, figure these things out that are beyond your skill set? So really reaching out and uh, doing a lot of um, networking with other professionals is really, really important. And then from a, so, from a practice management point of view, what has been great for me is, you know, practice management software. So I use Clio, which is um, uh, an online cloud-based practice management software, which I love. Um, Again, you know, you can't possibly maintain records all by hand or in Word. I mean, you could do it all in Word documents and Excel spreadsheets, I suppose. But with practice management software, you can make sure that you're, you know, complying with law society rules. Uh, you can have all your records accessible, you know, in many different ways and just keeping tabs and tasks assigned to follow up on various matters is really, really important. Um, you need good accounting software. So I use QuickBooks, which is very affordable. Um, and then, yes, a bookkeeper is ideal as well, if you can if you can do that. But right off the bat, what you want to do is have very good record keeping. So you want to be able to keep attention to detail, maintain all your receipts. It's not just about, you know, charging a client, getting the money and ta-da, you're done, right? You need to maintain good records because in those first few years, you will get audited by the Law Society. And I think it's an excellent thing to be audited by the Law Society early on because then that sets you up for the rest of your practice and you'll get audited less and less. So I think when I first started, I think maybe within the first three years, um, I had a practice management audit. So that is when they come and check to make sure that you're following the Law Society rules with respect to uh, your dealings with clients and management of client files. And they look at literally everything. They look at a random file. They look at the notes you took. They'll ask you, um, what kind of legal defenses did you discuss with your client? Can you show me a note that reflects that and reflects your communications with the client? Um, And I learned a lot of important things that have definitely reshaped uh, the way I maintain notes, the way I maintain different things for my practice. So that's, uh, you know, a good thing. Um, they also financially audit you. So it's really important to be able to be meticulous uh, in your record keeping. And that's something I'm glad that I did from the beginning, but I know not everyone takes as seriously until they get their audit. So just to, you know, that that's something to maintain right off the bat. And I think now more than ever, these legal softwares are being used as an integral tool within law firms. 
and they offer all these new features. And perhaps Mm -hmm. many of the firms have moved since the pandemic to a more technology conscious environment and are utilizing the technology available to them to organize their practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, because we had already all those things set up when the pandemic hit, we were not affected in terms of our practice. Like just staying at home was, that was fine because there's very little that we needed physically in the office. So, you know, we noticed the value of, you know, investing in those uh, kinds of programs and tools uh, when the pandemic hit for sure. Oh yeah. Wow. That's great. You were, you were all prepared. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It was almost like you foresaw what was going to come. You know what? I was just I was just excited that there was like a software out there where I can use it on my phone. So when I'm in court, I could dock my time while in court through an app. I was like, that is pretty cool. Um, and I'm glad that that obviously transitioned very well during the pandemic. And uh, <laughs> that's great. And now that we're on the topic of the pandemic, how has it affected your practice or has the transition been quite seamless? So from a business point of view, um, it was seamless, as I said, because of our client files are, you know, um, all online um, yeah, in a compliant way. And uh, we had easy access to our practice management software. Um, but in terms of the way it affected clients, so I think there's like kind of two stages of the pandemic in my mind for my practice. So the first stage of the pandemic from March until August 2020 was kind of, you know, scary because all the courts and tribunals basically closed or adjourned everything. And we had no idea when they would reopen. Um, And that was scary because a lot of our matters are based, uh, you know, we can interim bill, but, you know, really you need to be able to finish your case to send out a bill, right? Especially if you have a legal aid case. Um, But in a lot of our immigration matters, we just final bill. So there was that anxiety of being like, okay, I do have a lot of files, but I cannot get to them. I had a very, very busy spring uh, scheduled. I had like, I think something like 15 hearings scheduled between uh, March and uh, maybe I think end of May, early June. And it was like very busy, um, you know, schedule. And all of that just got pushed. So I had the security of knowing like, okay, I do like, you know, there's work. I'm not afraid of that, but I when can I get to do it, right? And then when can I bill it out? So there was that anxiety of that. Now, in August, when everything kind of shifted to virtual hearings, um, the from a, and I'm talking here now from a financial perspective, it was much easier because then, we you know, we started to go back to work essentially on those litigation files, most which is most of my practice. Um, now, if you're an immigration lawyer that just does work permits and like permits based applications, maybe this would not have affected you as much. But from for us, it did have a huge effect because a lot of our work is appearing before these courts and tribunals. So in August, when um, things came back uh, virtually, you know, it was just a matter of then figuring out, OK, how do we meet with clients, prepare clients and do this virtually in a safe way? So it's interesting because. For most of our clients, the, you know, 
transition to virtual meetings was a benefit because these clients, for instance, had a difficult time finding childcare when they need to come for a meeting with me or their single parents, you know. Um, so being able to just like talk to me from even their bathroom, they found a relief and they just liked the ease of it. Um, so I, I thought that was like something I noticed. I'm like, oh, you know, I could have offered this earlier, I guess. I didn't, you know, it just didn't come to mind. But then there is a segment of our, our clients who are very vulnerable. So vulnerable because, for instance, they don't have secure housing, they're homeless, um, or they have language or intellectual, you know, um, uh, barriers that would make it difficult for them to even have access to a cell phone, access to the internet, or, you know, or have the ability to function with like Zoom for a meeting. Or clients who have no, um, uh, you know, confidentiality or confidential space to have these conversations with me, right? Because when you're talking to a client, you want to make sure that they're in a safe, confidential space and can speak freely with you. So for those clients, um, we then continue to have in-person meetings with all the COVID safety protocols in place in our office. But that wasn't that many clients. It felt very manageable to, and easy to do. Um, and on the upside, well, something that was really interesting for us to um, implement was for all of our clients who were refugee uh, refugees and had hearings, um, because these were happening virtually, I always gave my clients the option of testifying from their own home or testifying from my office. And I would say 95%, I think maybe all of my clients except for one set of clients, chose to testify from my office. And I think that the... And, and, and all of those hearings went very, very well. All of them were successful. But I think it's because psychologically, um, it's it feels a lot more, it puts them at more ease being in my office, in the comfort of my office that they know so well. And I started doing these things to kind of create that hearing experience even more kind of um, inviting. So for instance, I would leave stress balls in there. <laughs> I would leave water. I would like dim the lights. I would, you know, and I'm in the next room. So I'm in my office. They're in like a spare office, um, completely on their own just for, you know, for COVID reasons. Um, but they still preferred that to just doing it from their own home. So I think some clients, the move to virtual hearings has been a blessing because they don't feel so anxious. You know, normally if you're going to an in-person hearing, you're going through security, then you're in this alien room and the board members right in front of you and it's intimidating so the fact that the intimidation has scaled way back uh, by putting them in these comfortable settings I think has been an unexpected uh, silver lining in all this um, so I think that the pandemic certainly has a lot of um, unexpected you know, developments. And this is one of the things that I'm most happy about. And I think a lot of my clients would love to continue being able to testify in this way, especially if they have, um, you know, anxiety or depression or any other mental health conditions that kind of elevate their level of stress for the day of their hearing. Do you foresee that uh, the courts and tribunals will continue this kind of virtual platform even after the pandemic ends? Um, you know, it's funny, as practitioners, 
you know, oftentimes we are very skeptical of virtual hearings and virtual hearings actually did take place uh, for a select number of cases pre-pandemic. Um, sometimes due to, you know, an overload, um, the IRB transfers files to different areas, like they'll transfer a file to Vancouver and then you have to kind of um, do a virtual hearing with a board member who's appearing by video. Um, and we were very, you know, as, as practitioners, you're always weary of that because you're concerned about what is lost between the connection between the board member and a claimant, right? Like there is something that is lost when you're not able to see someone in front of you um, for those credibility assessments. But what I've found personally in my practice, and I don't want to speak for anyone else when I say this, is that that I don't think that is as much of a loss anymore. I find that um, our clients are much more comfortable this way. They're less intimidated. They're more at ease, which in, in, an, in and of itself affects, um, you know, their credibility because they're not nervous and not fidgeting. They're not, you know, drawing blanks. Like they've been able to testify in a comfortable way. So, you know, there is that. The thing is like in criminal court, that's, you know what, I think you really lose a lot. If you're not able to cross-examine someone in front of you, I think that is a significant, that has a significant negative effect. So I think for criminal courts, especially I think going, and, and right now they are for the most part, I think continuing their trials in person as best as they can, except for this lockdown, I think there's been a, there's been a pause, but I think for criminal lawyers, it's a different thing, but in my line of work, I feel like they, they could continue it this way, but I'm not sure that they will. It's really hard to tell right now. Um, as a practitioner, I think I would welcome it and then offer my client the option. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, I guess this is, um, one of our last questions. Do you, in your own practice, do you prefer um, communicating with clients over video conferencing calls or after the pandemic ends, do you think that um, it'll be kind of back to pre-pandemic times where they come into your office or maybe a mixture of both? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. During the pandemic, I have mostly worked from home. And I find that for myself and my own sanity, it has actually been great. And I've been even more productive and I've had no loss in terms of client interaction. Uh, my clients like the convenience of Zoom. And again, I'm speaking of those clients who are able to access and are not vulnerable. For my vulnerable clients, I still go into the office, uh, whether it's once a week, once every two weeks. Um, out of sheer necessity. I think for me personally and speaking to, you know, my associate and, and my, and my um, assistant and any other students who are there, I like to provide flexible work options. I think it's really crazy that people are required to come into the office. If anything, this pandemic has shown that we can all work and thrive really um, from home. And it's just it's just a personal thing. Uh, my associate prefers, like Courtney goes to the office um, every single day um, and that's what her preference is. And my assistant actually goes in, I think twice a week just to have a change of scenery. Whereas I like to avoid the office if I can. <laughs> so everyone is different and I'm going to keep it very open to my clients and my staff to do kind of pretty much what they, what, whatever they wish, whatever is more convenient to them. The main thing with respect to clients is that it's not about me. It's about them. And I want to be as accessible to them as possible. 
So if my clients say they really need to see me in person because they you know, don't have a confidential place to talk to me from, or they just don't have the capacity or the internet connection to be able to maintain a Zoom call, 100% I will meet them you know, in, uh, in my office. So I think we are probably going to, in our office, uh, maintain a mixed model um, in order to do that. But uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. And um, yeah, it's it's all about the client and in terms of how they feel comfortable. And it all also helps them to, I guess, like communicate better. So so that that definitely makes sense. Um, I guess mm-hmm. one final question. Um, and, you know, I think throughout the episode, you, you provided a lot of like, really, you know, good nuggets of advice, but um, and tips, do you have any other advice for other students who are thinking of starting their own practice, other lawyers who are thinking of starting their own practice? Yes, I mean, I think the main thing you need to know is that um, it's, it's really is wonderful to be able to open your own practice and create a workplace that is reflective of your values. And, you know, that's maybe free of a lot of the negative stuff, the negative um, cultures or environments that you might face in other types of workplaces or firms. So there's that, I think, and and it's a wonderful experience. But I think you do have to put in a lot of effort on the front end um, and manage your expectations and um, just just do your homework. So for me, um, I remember when I first started Um, I went to a conference, uh, I think it was Women in Criminal Law Conference, and uh, Michael Edelson was speaking um, about starting his practice. And everything he said that day, I really took to heart. So, you know, some of the things he said was like, you know, find a niche, find something that is unique to you, that is, you know, why people would seek you out, you know, definitely did that. The second thing, one of the other things he said was, you know, you're only going to have maybe one client or maybe no clients, but, you know, you want to use all the time that you have at that stage in your career to read up and do your homework on your area of law so that when opportunity does come knocking, you're ready to seize it. Because the worst thing that can happen is you do have cases coming your way and you've not done the homework to be a competent advocate for that client. You do not want to find yourself in that position. So every time I didn't have a case that I was working on back then, I was just scrolling through cases and reading every book I could get my hands on. And that is really important. And I miss those days because I wish I could read every case that comes out now. I don't have that chance. So I'm glad that I kind of invested so much in educating myself and keeping myself up to date with things when I didn't have as many clients because you really lose that opportunity to do that very, very quickly. And the main thing is there's opportunities everywhere. And I really am not saying this lightly. Like there there are there. You just have to be... Um, you know, creative and open-minded and seize them. Um, so for instance, like when I first started, um, I couldn't off, uh, couldn't afford an office space. So I went back to my articling principal and I said, I'm sure you need help on some criminal trials. And he did. And so he hired me part-time, um, you know, to help him with some big trials that he had. And while working for him and out of his office, I basically started my little humble um, operation, you know, even though I didn't even have my own office space. Um, And then, you know, they had an office um, within their suite that was kind of 
full of boxes that nobody cared about. And I saw opportunity in that. I said, I could make that my office. And so I went back to my articling principal and I said, hey, do you mind if I rent out that office with no windows that nobody is using? And he said, sure. And, you know, he charged me basically a nominal rent, which he continued to charge me for only like for the for the next five years. He never increased my rent. So, again, you know, um, no one's just going to offer you things. You just have to be very creative and keep your eyes wide open for opportunities, uh, whether that's in discovering your niche or building your relationships or mentors or just finding, you know, what your office is going to look like and where it's going to work. So just, you know, you can thrive. You just need to keep an open mind. Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you so much, Aisha, for sharing all of, you know, your wonderful insights. Um, I think anybody listening to this episode, you know, could tell from from your words that, you know, you are so passionate about what you do and you care a lot about your clients and you're such a go-getter and it's super inspiring. So thank you so much. Um, so thank you. For those who are interested in getting in contact with you, where can they find you? Uh, well, you can just go to my website. So that's www.kumaratna-law.com. Um, I'm sure you can find my last name spelt out on this episode. Um, uh, and then you can shoot me an email or just give me a call. Uh, one thing I do very much like to do is happen, have an open door policy for anyone who wants you know, advice or mentorship. Uh, in the summers, we run a uh, well, actually, for all of our um, SBI students, if you're a law student and if you're interested in working for me, um, I strongly suggest that you look up the course that we offer every semester, which is a practicum. Uh, it's an internship with uh, Kumaratna Law. And uh, during that, we focus on the practical side of uh, the law, but also we have mentorship chats with uh, Miho. You know a few a few things about that. And the mentorship chats are Chats are really uh, a way to discuss anything and everything that has to do with law, life, and being a woman in law, uh, which, uh, again, is something that we feel is important for your development in those early years. So connect with me any which way, and I'd be happy to have a, a chat with you. Thank you so much, Aisha. And we'll link all of her uh, social media handles and her website in the description at thelawschoolshow.com and thank you so much everybody for listening Uh, stay tuned for the next episode you've just been listening to The Law School Show you can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts Stitcher and now on Spotify or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com if you liked what you heard like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.